Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. If you're new to Oak City Church, uh, welcome. We're really glad that you're with us this morning. We'd love to get to know you better, and we hope that you um, are a part of this series and reading plan and all that we have uh, coming up. So this is the series that we're starting. It's called Connecting the Dots, how the little stories of the Bible tell God's big story that helps us understand our story. And so the first story that we're going to start with is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. We are going through this series uh, for a couple different reasons. One is it fits with a reading plan. The beginning of the year, we always challenge you to a new reading plan. And this year, we picked one called the E100, the Essential 100. It's a 100-day reading plan. I've actually consciously, purposefully lowered the bar on a reading plan this year because I feel bad about how many of you feel bad about having accepted the challenge the last few years. But then after a few weeks or a few months, Uh, You fell behind, and now you feel bad about reading your Bible, which is not what I wanted. I want you to feel good about reading your Bible. So I I need you to sign up for this. You can go to the homepage and click the series link for Connecting the Dots, and it'll give you the link um, to Uversion and the invite to the Oak City plan where you get to everybody's comments, and we all get to participate together. And so that reading plan is part of the reason we're, uh, we're doing this. I will... There's a, it'll be a little bit confusing because we will not follow the dates exactly the way version does. Um, you'll understand that when you get into version. But for the first 15 days, just do every single day. It's about a chapter a day. Do every single day. And then after that, we'll tell you. We're going to read five days a week, and we'll tell you what days you need to be reading. So that's one reason it fits with this reading plan. Another is that we, we can do it together. Our home groups are going to be discussing this uh, during the week um, uh, we have a, a discussion guide that we've sent out to home groups, and we're sending it out to everybody so that you can have discussions around your dinner table, uh, that you can talk over it with friends. If you have a core group, you can discuss it there because it's going to be rich for discussion. We're going to offer a Sunday night discussion group at 7 p.m. We're going to um, Zoom it up. It's going to be an hour because we know you're Zoomed out, and so we'll limit it to that. But if you want to talk this stuff over with me, and I would love to because I love talking about this stuff, uh, email me, jeff at oakcitychurch.com, and let me know you're interested in and we'll get you to be a part of that. But we want to do this um, together. And then the third reason we're doing it is because every few years we try and do a high-level overview of the Bible, like a 30,000-foot view of the Bible, which you need because so often someone starts— 
you know, re-engages Christ or starts following Christ, and, and we just give them a Bible. It's like we push them out of the airplane with a parachute, and they land in the jungle or in the desert or in the Arctic, you know, because different parts of the Bible feel different ways, and you start reading one part of the Bible, and you're like, ah, that doesn't make any sense. Is this what the whole Bible is like? Because it's a big book. And so you need to understand, you need to map. You need to understand the whole story uh, for the little stories to make sense. And so every few years we do that, and that's, that's part of the reason we're doing this. Because the Bible, people think of the Bible, they call it an instruction book, and it's got some instructions, but it's not that, or a rule book. It's not that. Um, it's more than a history book. It is more than a book of wisdom. It is, it is a story. I mean, it's from beginning to end. It tells one story, and it's a true story, and it's a story of God uh, and his people. And so when we understand the story, we, it tells us who he is, and it tells us who we are. It tells us where we've been, and it tells us where we're headed. Uh, it tells us how our life, our little story, plays a part in God's big story, and it helps us to understand how to play our part well, so that we can do the thing, the part that we're supposed to play in his story well. And because that's true, there's a way of looking at this that says we have a choice to make that either, like, we look at our life as like, this is my story, and I'm the main character of my story, and I get to make my story what I want my story to be, and that's kind of the default for us. Or to say, you know what, my story is a, is a little story in a, in a grand epic story, and I have a chance to play the part that God wants me to in his story. But that's two really different choices. And when you choose the first one and say, this is my story, and I'm the main character, then we're always fighting for the spotlight. And honestly, after a while, we're always trying to convince ourselves that our, our story isn't lame, you know, <laughs> because it's a little story compared to all the other stories. And and when we play our part in his story, then we got to understand that he might give us a part or it seems like we have a part that's not necessarily the part we wanted to play. And sometimes we don't know how we fit in. We don't know where it's going. But then other times we're like, whoa, I got to play this part in this story. And I had no idea. I didn't see that coming. And when you choose that that second option, we need to understand what the plot line is to figure out where we fit in it. We need to understand who the actors and actresses that came before us are, and who the, the ones that are going to come after us, and the ones that are alongside us, and the plot line, and what we can expect. And most importantly, we need to understand the, the director and the producer and the writer of the story, and to know that he is, he is worth our trust, and we can, we can trust our lives. Uh, to him, and so that's what we want to accomplish with uh, this with this series. Now, um, part of the reason I, I couch it in terms of story is because I found that to be really helpful. I, we're obsessed with stories; it's the air we breathe in ways that we don't even realize. You know, our TV shows, um, our stories, our movies, our stories, our books, our stories, our sports that we follow. You know, their stories, all of them. Like the, I think I saw that The Bachelor, did I get that right? You can text me if I got that right, that The Bachelor started this week. That's not a reality show, that's a story. And so we play that out and there's going to be heroes and there's going to be villains and people we cheer for and people we cheer against. And we want to know how it, uh, how it resolves. All of the CSNCISTUV, all those cop shows, they're all stories and we want justice. You know, we want resolution at the end of those stories. The Hallmark movies, they're all stories, and we want them to end uh, well. Wonder Woman came out last week or the week before, and 
you know, just in, in a whole bunch of stories, a, story, a little story within a big story that we want to know how it works out. Our sports, the Green Bay Packers play the Chicago Bears this afternoon, and that's just part of a story, and we need heroes and villains in our story. So we need heroes like the Green Bay Packers, and we need villains like the Chicago Bears, and we need the Packers to beat the evil Bears. And so, like, the, all of it is, all of it's like that. Even the stuff that we you know, you get something you really wanted for Christmas, it's part of your story. Is this the thing that's going to satisfy me and for how long and then what's next or a job or a promotion or a house or whatever it is? And all stories uh, follow the same format. So all stories start, they have a setting. Uh, read your, you know, if you got little kids, you read them stories at night, just, just track this, pay attention to it because you're going to see it. They all have a setting and it's the way that things are and usually they don't like take long to establish uh, the setting. And usually there's a character that they want you to identify with, to relate to, to cheer for, to become the hero in the story. And in little kids' stories, uh, this doesn't take but a second. You know, once upon a time, and boom, you're in. In a, in a bad story, it takes a really long time, and they try too hard to develop the characters, and you don't care, and so you put the story down and turn on something else. Uh, in the Bible story, we get two chapters of Genesis, and we have our setting established. <laughs> and so the Bible's going to get to it. Um, the Bible's going to get to it really quick. And then there's a stress, and something goes wrong uh, in the story. Something disrupts the harmony, the shalom of the setting. And then after that stress, there's a search, and we got to figure out how we're going to fix this. And the search is the plot line, and it can take twists and turns, and you can get to a place where you're like, oh, I think we got this figured out, but then we don't. And then you can get to a place where you're like, we're never going to figure this out. Um, and then finally you do, and you get to a solution. And we fixed it, and then there is a, a new setting. And we're going to see that in the big story of the Bible. We're going to see that in all the little stories, and so I'll, I'll return to that. And today, uh, what I'm going to do is really focus on the stress. Um, I'm going to lean back to the setting, the first two chapters, and not talk about it much, which is killing me. Honestly, if you know me, it's killing me not to. Uh, it, fe it feels like pastoral and theological malpractice to go straight to the stress, but it, we just felt it worked best with the way that we have to go through this series. But where the stress in the story of the Bible comes from, and you're just going to see that this is the stress in your life as well, and how they relate to each other, and then we're going to lean into the search. So this is how this, this one of these little stories starts. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, that the Lord God had made. And so th this is the setting, lean back into the setting, the Lord God had made. God made everything, and everything God made was good. And that's the first two chapters of, uh, of the Bible. You see in the beginning, um, God created the heavens and the earth. It's formless and void. The Spirit of God hovers over the waters. He speaks, and things are. And there's order to that. The first three days of creation, he creates forms, and the next three days, he fills those forms, and the seventh day, he takes a rest, and there's a pattern of creation uh, that we're called to follow with the idea of Sabbath. Um, with the idea of Sabbath today, uh, there is a, a refrain of, of looking at what he's created, speaking it, which is the word of God, the agency of God is Jesus, and, and then looking at it and declaring that it's good, and he gets to Adam and Eve and says it was very good. And so um, there's a refrain in that. And there's a lot of, um, the, the, the Genesis account is, 
in a way meant to be a contrast to other accounts that existed when the Genesis account was recorded. Uh, one guy I was listening to recently said there's a lot of trash talk in the Genesis account when it comes to other, like the Enuma Elish and all these other uh, creation accounts. It's the Bible Project guy. You should listen to those guys. Um, but it's different than those other accounts. And I read a book years ago that laid this out and said in those other accounts, like they just viewed history as cyclical, like what comes around goes around, the same thing is going to continue to happen. And that the Bible was the first one, Judaism is the first religion, it's like they put their foot in the ground and said, we're going this way, we're going forward and we are going to make progress and we're not going to look back. And that was a new concept, it revolutionized things um, in the day that it was written. Now, when it comes to the first couple chapters of the Bible, like, there are a million questions that come up that, you know, I, I can't address, and, and a million I can't even answer. And, and so you may have questions. We talk about those sometime, and I would love to. Uh, my questions are not, um, how did God do that? Or even, how long did it take God to do that? Uh, those are questions, and I've asked them, but they're just not my pressing questions. If you want to know, my pressing question is, like, okay, it was all good, like, so it was all good at one point, and now we're in this, and then it's going to be good again. And just how do we square that with what we know? And that's the thing that I, I wrestle with. And I don't, it's not, I don't lay awake at night thinking about it. I just think it's a good question. And, and I do think, like, in our reality, every story that we engage resolves, or it's a bad story, or not a story. You know what I mean? And it usually it resolves favorably. Um, it resolves well. It leaves us satisfied in some way. And if it doesn't, it doesn't sell. Uh, I remember a few years ago going to see, I think it was the second Lord of the Rings movie. It was like 17 hours long, uh, or it felt like that. It was like, it, but it was three hours long. And it didn't like end. It just stopped. Like there was no resolution in the plot. And I guess that's part of the trilogy, you know, but I walked out of it like we just got ripped off. You know, what was that? And that's how we feel about stories that don't resolve. We're convinced they're going to resolve. And why do we feel like that? Why are we um, convinced if we've never really known ultimate good? Why are we absolutely certain not only that it exists, but it is our destiny <laughs> to be a part of a pure ultimate good if we haven't known it in the past, if it's not out there somewhere? Why does injustice bother us so badly if, like, just pure evolutionary, you know, theory, like, injustice is what got us here? Uh, you know, why does it bother us so badly if we don't know that there is absolute pure justice out there in the universe? And all those things to me, and a lot more point to God, this is what it's saying, God is real, God is good, and God is the reason that you and I are here. And so this is the third thing about our setting, that we are made in the image of God to do good and to experience intimacy with God and each other. And we know this, the more we go through these stories, this story, this will echo in your soul, and you know this is true. You know, you're made in the image of God. You are not God, but you, are, you feel God-like at times. And that is a problem for you and the people around you. You know, because you're made like him in order to make him known to the people around you. But that gets, that gets tricky. You're made to do good. You're made to be productive. And you don't have to do that. You can settle for something less than that. But the times when you feel like most satisfied or when you're contributing, 
uh, to something bigger than yourself and something that you know fits in that category of good. And you're made for relationship. Um, you're made for the, the fullness of being loved, of your heavenly Father saying, you are very good, and I have made you for a purpose. And that overflowing into the relationships around you so that you can bless people the way that you have been blessed. We're made for that. That's the setting of our existence, of our story. That's where it starts. But in chapter 3, it's about to get all jacked up. So here comes the stress to the story, um, to your story. There is a, uh, God is, is the, you know, the, the, the force of good in, in the universe, but there is a force for evil in the universe, and that is the serpent represented by the serpent. It's Satan, and he hates God, and he hates you. And I know that I bring a lot into that, um, but, but it's, if you can buy that there is an a embodiment of good, and what, it's God, that there is an embodiment of evil, goes right along with that, and he hates you. And the rest of the story tells us that, that he's a schemer. You know, Luke tells us that he left Jesus till an opportune time. Paul tells us that he, he has schemes that he's wanting to play out on us. Peter tells us that he's like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. And the story of Job tells us that he would kill your children uh, if he could. He hates you. And he hates Adam and Eve and he hates God. There's evil in the universe, but sometimes it masquerades as good. So the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So, a little more setting, a little more backstory. God created Adam and Eve, called them very good. He puts them in a garden to work it and keep it, uh, and he gives them free reign. He's, there's two trees in the middle of the garden, the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, eat from that tree of life all you want. Let's hang out forever, you know, but that tree of the knowledge of good and evil he doesn't even say, hey, if you eat from that, I'm going to kill you. He says, if you eat from that, there are consequences to it, and surely you're going to die. Um, I mean, he's, there's a gentleness with the way that he presents that to him. And so the serpent says to him, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's absolutely not what God said, um, but that's how Satan schemes and, you know, twists it. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which he never said, <laughs> lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what could be so bad about that? What could possibly be bad about that? Here is the fundamental tension in the story. The fundamental tension. God said no. <laughs> he said no to you and to me. He told us there's a red button. Don't press the red button. Here's the problem. God restricts our sovereignty. Actually, he doesn't restrict it. He suggests we restrict ourselves to do whatever we want, however we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want, for whatever reason we want to. He put some limits on that, and we don't like it. That is so hard in a world today that legitimizes everything by the way it makes you feel. <laughs> and if it makes you feel good, then it is your right to do it, and it must be right if it makes you feel good. And they are in the same situation. This was 
recorded 3,500 years ago is when it was written down. We think, who knows how long ago it happened. It is just as relevant today as it ever has been. Um, and I think it's been relevant every day from then until now because we haven't changed. God restricts us. And here's what the devil says about that. God's a meanie. God's a meanie. He's a mean guy. You shouldn't do what he tells you to do. Here are three lies that the devil tells us about God. And he's told us then and he still tells us now. God doesn't love you. That's the first one. God doesn't love you. He loves himself. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. Well, first thing, we're already like him. He already told us that we're like him. We don't need to be like him. But he twists that like that's something that he's holding back from you. You know, or there's something more to it. Um, and you'll know good and evil. And what he's saying is you won't need him anymore because you'll be him. You won't need for him to tell you what's good and evil uh, because you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. One of the first verses I ever memorized, Proverbs 3, 6, and 7, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And it leans back into this, into the garden. Uh, here is, this, this is not, this isn't rocket science. You know what I mean? This isn't hard. Let me, here's a thought. Let me try this out on you. God is smarter than you. Say it with me. Everybody say it with me. God is smarter than me. God is smarter than me. That doesn't seem hard, right? But it's hard right here, and it's hard now. He's smarter, so he, we should do what he tells us to do. But what the devil says and what culture says today is that's repressive. That's repressive. That's not fair. You should be able to do whatever you feel like doing. No, it's not repressive. It's dealing with reality <laughs> that I'm not God and I don't understand everything. And God is smarter than me. It's dealing with reality along with the idea is that God has authority over me because he is the one that's created me and has authority over the entire universe, which he doesn't really even flaunt here. He's not heavy-handed in the way that he presents this in, in Genesis. He's gentle with it, and that God is, is pure good, and they, they were good in a way that we're not good, but we're not good. Um, and so the fundamental, our fundamental problem is our resistance to accept that. The devil also communicates these lies. There are no consequences to disobeying God. Um, you you surely will not die. God didn't mean that, at least not right away. You know, and, and that's the, we get that communicated today. Go ahead and do whatever you want. There aren't consequences, and usually that's the case. There aren't consequences like right away, and you don't find out what they are until um, they're too late. And the third one is you can't know what God's will is. The way he puts it is, did God really say, and then he twists God's words. You can't eat any tree of the garden and just gets her confused, and we do the same thing. And there's some legitimacy to saying, you know what, this book was written a long time ago, and how do we translate it to, to today? But we use that too often as an excuse to pretend like we don't know what God wants when God's made what he wants in a lot of circumstances really, really clear. Um, brought me to, to Romans chapter 12 where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I bring that up to say, no, he wants us to know what his will is, and he's given us his word, and Paul says, or yeah, Paul says, 
you know, present your bodies as a living sacrifice and you'll be able to discern what the will of God is by the help of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to know what that is, but too often we get deceived into believing that we can't know that. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and she took of its fruit. If I could just sit there in that moment where she is holding the fruit of that tree and contemplating the decision she is about to make. And there is some like, there's some power in that moment of realizing I don't have to do what God told me to do. I can do what I want to do. There's power in that. Um, But then also the trepidation, the hesitation, the concern, the worry, the fear of like, oh, what happens if I do the thing that he told me not to do. Um, It says she also gave some to her husband, who was right there with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This book, and I've referenced this over the years because I think it's the best description of, if you're a reader, put this on your list, Searching for God Knows What by Donald Miller, because he does such a great job of explaining the relational dynamics in the fall and and the gospel and how it affects us. And he makes a big point. He had a seminary professor that talked so much about how Moses, and it is kind of weird when you're, if you're not used to it, like five times says that they were naked, and then um, all of a sudden says that they had to put clothes on. Like Moses makes a big deal when he records this of them being naked. Uh, And he says, here's what I think Moses was saying. Man is wired, so he gets his glory, security, understanding of value, his feeling of purpose, his feeling of rightness with his maker, his security for eternity from God. Um, So that we get our value. We're wired so that we get it from outside of ourselves, from God. And this relationship is so strong and God's love so pure that Adam and Eve felt no insecurity at all. So much so that they walked around naked and they didn't even realize they were naked. But when that relationship was broken, they knew it instantly. All of their glory, the glory that came from God was gone. It wouldn't be unlike being in love and having somebody love you, and then all of a sudden that person is gone like a kid lost in the store. All of the insecurity rises the instant you realize you were alone. No insecurity was felt when the person who loved you was around, but in in his absence, it instantly comes to the surface. In this way, Adam and Eve were naked, And we're not ashamed when God was around, but the second their relationship was broken, they realized it and were ashamed, and that's just the beginning. If man is wired so that something outside of himself told him who he was, and if God's presence was giving him a feeling of fulfillment, then when that relationship was broken, man would be pining for other people to tell him that he was good, right, okay with the world, and eternally secure. As I wrote earlier, we are all comparing ourselves to others, and none of our emotions like jealousy and envy and lust could exist Unless man was wired so that someone else told him who he was and that somebody else was gone. Another place he talks about what happens in this moment and the decision they make. And he says, far from a technicality in behavior, their eating of the fruit was a heart-level betrayal between committed friends, God and man. At issue in the tragedy of the garden is a relational crime. Adam and Eve were not satisfied with their relationship with God And they wanted to change the dynamic by increasing their own power, a reality that simply wasn't possible, save in the fantasy realm whispered them 
through the words of the evil one. Uh, I, um, over the years, have, have come to, to believe this that pretty absolutely, that everybody is walking around, not at a surface level, but at a deep level, asking themselves two questions. Am I loved? And am I good? And you're going to have to spend some time thinking about that and, and how deep that goes for you and how it affects your behavior. Because I think probably 90% of people, like what they think and what they say and what they do is affected by those two questions. The decisions they make, what, am I loved and am I good? And God, God never wanted us to have to ask those questions. That's what we see in the, the setting, that he, he creates them and says, you are very good, and that echoes in our souls. And they knew that they were loved because they had perfect relationship uh, with God. Now Satan comes in, and he, he messes up both those questions. So he casts doubt on whether or not God really loves you. You know, did God, did God really say that? Like, why would God say that? That's silly. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll know good and evil, and you'll know the things that he knows. So why would God say that? And he casts that doubt that is still in there. Did God give us that command because he loves us? Or did God give us that command because he loves himself and he wants to control us? And so we question whether God, in light of what the Bible says about our reality, whether or not he really loves us, or we end up questioning the Bible. <laughs> because, but it's the same dynamic that asks us to, or that causes us to question that. Um, is God, does he really love us? And we're desperate for that. People are, are desperate to be loved, um, which is another reason, I think, to believe that the whole thing is true. And the minute they ate the fruit, they knew they weren't good anymore. Uh, it's why they covered themselves with fig leaves, because um, they, they instantly felt shame. They'd broken relationship with the one who is all good and the one who does have authority over them and the one whom they can trust, but then they didn't trust. And once that's broken, and they know they're not good, then they wonder, how can we become good again? And so we're all looking you know, for affirmation that we're loved, and for affirmation that we're good and looking for that a lot of times in the wrong places. Um, that's the stress in our story is a broken relationship with God. A woman named Jen Wilkin put it this way, God is our origin, and because of that we owe him worship and obedience, but instead we worship ourselves. We were created to reflect him, but instead we rival him. Despite the fact that we have rebelled against him, he reconciles us to him. He provides a way back when he is faithful to ensure um, that it happens. That's how she describes like, the results of these dynamics uh, in this chapter. This author uh, has another passage talking about just the relational aspect of what it does to our relationship with God. And he says, all this makes me wonder what God must have felt arriving on the scene just after the fall, knowing all he had made was ruined and understanding at once the sacrifice that would be required to win the hearts of his children from the grasp of their seducer. I see him in my mind walking the paths, calling to the couple, meeting their eyes for the first time, and Adam and Eve shaking in absolute 
terror, wondering what had happened, confused at the broken promise of a snake, feeling at once the trustworthiness of their first love and wondering if God would ever love them again, feeling the hot breath of his anger and emotion, hearing him speak for the first time, not as a friend, but as one who had been betrayed. Who told you that you were naked? And, and immediately we start seeing the consequences of um, of their decision and of not having the answers to those questions. It creates division between Adam and Eve. Um, They cover themselves with fig leaves. God shows up and says, what happened? And Adam says, the woman you gave me, she did it. Uh, Their fellowship is broken. The woman blames it on the serpent. And so they experience shame and blame. They have kids, Cain and Abel, and now they're bringing sacrifices to God because that's the natural thing that we do when we offend somebody is we bring a sacrifice to them. And we do this all the time in our relationships. Uh, and so Cain brings a sacrifice to God, and it's not the right sacrifice. And God isn't heavy-handed with him. He's real gentle with him, but Cain flips out <laughs> because he's not justified. And he ends up killing his brother, who in that scene is the competition. And then we get the story of Noah. And I think Noah is a story that, that tells us that if God leaves us alone with our sin, the world will go to hell in a handbasket in a hurry. Uh, that he leaves us with our sin, that it becomes hell right now. There are consequences to our sin. And then, um, as we're going to see next week, he starts, you know, his plan of fixing it. There's a great quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. Um, So setting, stress, and I'm going to give away the whole story in the first week because I'm going to hint into search, but then um, talk about how that's resolved. And right there in Genesis chapter 3, he declares curses on Eve, on Adam, and on the serpent. And when he declares a curse on the serpent, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, your offspring and her offspring, And he shall bruise your head, uh, and you shall bruise his heel. Um, And so the seed of the woman, and she thinks it's Cain, I've, you know, I've begotten a man, but but eventually it's going to be Jesus, and that's what what God's talking about in Genesis 3. And the the serpent is going to bruise his heel on the cross. He's going to bruise Jesus, but on the cross, um, Jesus is going to crush his head and defeat the power of evil forever on the cross. And everybody agrees that right there in Genesis chapter 3 is, the, is the, the echo of the solution that's going to come years and years uh, later. And you go back to the two questions, am I loved and am I good? And the gospel, Jesus gives us the answer to those questions. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. If you ever wonder if God loves you, look at Jesus. If you wonder if you've done like too much when you come face to face with that in the mirror and you get yourself to look at it, if you've done too much, you haven't. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What can separate us in Romans 8 from the love of God? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And so are we loved? Yes, Jesus tells us that. Are we good? No. No, we're not. And Jesus tells us that too because he lives the perfect life and it's a contrast to our imperfect lives. And this is the hardest part about the gospel 
And if you are on the fence about the gospel, I'd almost guarantee this is the place where you're on the fence, is that we won't humble ourselves before God and admit that we have sinned in a way that has just magnificent consequences, that they're just hard for us to face, that God has to take care of us, that deserves punishment. Because we put on a fig leaf and say, well, I'm not worse than anybody else. And that's all that is, is a way to justify ourselves. But in the gospel, we don't need to justify ourselves. It's telling us you can't justify yourself. God has to do the justification for you. Uh, We don't think we were bad enough that God had to send his son to die on a cross for us, but God had to send his son to die on a cross for us. And it takes a lot of humility to come before God naked and say, I did it, I did it, whatever it is, you know, Uh, and to accept the grace that he gives us in the cross. But maybe that's why the Bible is so long, (laughs) is because our heads are so hard and it takes so long for us to get us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin, and he took our sin. And uh, that he could take the punishment for our sins because he didn't have to take the punishment for his sins because he didn't sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so he takes our badness and he gives us his righteousness and our badness gets him on the cross and his righteousness gets us clean before the Father. And so are we good? No, but in Christ we are made good again because he gives us his righteousness. And that is the gospel. Am I loved and am I good? Those questions are answered in the gospel and that's where the story is taking us. Last thing I'll say about this is we accept this by faith. I wouldn't believe any of this if the tomb wasn't empty in Jerusalem. <laughs> I really wouldn't. Like, it's, it is a history book. And there was a guy named Jesus, and he did die on a cross at the hands of the Romans, and the, they, never, they don't know where the body is. And go ahead and try and figure that out. And that validates the whole story and tells us the entire thing is true and that we can believe it. But you still accept that by faith. And so at the beginning, what was their problem? Uh, is that they didn't trust God that they didn't take by faith what he said to be true. And what's the solution? Jesus comes along and says, hey, trust me. And so that's my invitation to you this morning. If you are new to this, if you are new to the Bible, if you are new to the gospel, um, that that is it, that you are loved by God and you're not good, but he makes you good again in Jesus. And that is something you accept by faith. And I would love for you this morning to accept that by faith and just confess to him, your sin and to accept the forgiveness that he gives you through Jesus and begin a new life in him. And we would love to help you with that as a church. Father, thanks for this, uh, for this story. Thanks for, I'm blown away by how this written thousands of years ago could be written this afternoon and be just as relevant, God. And so thank you that it's relevant to our lives, to our hearts, to our souls, to our relationships, um, to all of it. I pray for um, those that are listening, I pray that you would impress them uh, this upon their hearts and souls in the place that it needs to be heard. I pray for this uh, series, God, and I pray for um, the chance that it gives our church to, to re-engage each other and to reconnect and to grow deeper in you uh, through your word. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.